The Addiction Podcast, Point of No Return, sponsored by Narconon Ojai. Hello, and welcome to The Addiction Podcast, Point of No Return. My name is Joni Siegel, and I'm the host for this podcast. My husband, Steve Siegel, is the producer. If you have a story you would like to share with us, please reach out to Steve. This is episode number 203. When a person is addicted to drugs and or alcohol, the myriad of choices of treatment can be overwhelming. Narconon Ojai is a residential treatment facility that addresses the physical, mental, and spiritual aspects of addiction with a proven, holistic, completely drug-free, evidence-based step-by-step program designed to free those trapped by addiction. For more information, call 1-866-231-5924. Today we're going to be interviewing a woman named Emily Walden. Emily's son, TJ, was prescribed opioid throughout his childhood to help him recover from a series of operations, but he became addicted only once he started using OxyContin. He was a 21-year-old member of the Kentucky National Guard when he died of an opioid overdose four years later. Ever since her son's death, Ms. Walden has devoted herself to a singular mission, convincing the federal government to hold pharmaceutical executives personally responsible for their role in the nation's opioid crisis. And as those of you who have listened to our podcast know, we would agree with Ms. Walden on that. In addition to what she's doing today, she spoke at the FDA meeting concerning OPANA, which was an earlier opioid, and it resulted in the removal of the reformulation of OPANA ER from the market. She also flew to Oklahoma for the first day of the trial against J&J. She was on the 60 Minutes episode, The Label, and believes 100% if one company gets away with this, they all will. Without further ado, let's talk to Emily Walden. Emily, thank you so much for being willing to be on the podcast today and sharing the story of your son and what you are doing today, which I'm excited to hear about as much as you can tell us. <laughs> um. So I got into advocacy concerning the opioid epidemic because I lost my son, uh, TJ. He was 21 years old. Um, can I'm sorry to interrupt you, Emily, but can you take us back and, and tell, I know I read a little bit about it, that he was prescribed opioids when he was young because he had operations. And then how did that then progress? And tell me, tell us what happened to TJ. So it, as a child, he was prescribed um, opioids through numerous surgeries. He had a cyst inside his arm and he had broken his arm. And so they had to do numerous surgeries. And then he was not on opioids when he became addicted. He was offered an Oxycontin from a friend and became addicted so quickly. I mean, very quickly. And later, years later, I did some research that showed early exposure to opioids can make you become more susceptible to addiction and put you more at risk. And I believe that's why he became addicted so quickly. Interesting. So when he was young, he was prescribed drugs to handle pain, obviously, from operations. Did he then 
did he do any like marijuana or alcohol? Was there any of that type of drug use prior to taking the oxy? Um, a little bit here and there, I think, but not much. Um, Oxycontin was, I mean, it was everywhere, everywhere. And then Opana was very prevalent in our area. And he quickly moved to Opana and um, that ended up being a very, very difficult struggle for him. And what year was that? What year are we talking um, about? Around 2010. Okay. And how old was he? He was 21 years old when he passed away in 2012. Okay. So, so he, did he do Opana before Oxy? No, or? after. Okay. 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 You know, I, 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 we've been doing this podcast for almost four years and I'm trying to remember if I've ever even heard of Opana before. And I don't think I have until I read, you know, a little bit about your background and you know, what you, what you were doing. How did, he, how was he introduced to Opana? Was that, um, how was he introduced? It was very available in, in this area. I don't know, know the circumstances of the first time that he did Opana. Um, but it, I didn't understand how he could keep getting this drug. I didn't know what it was at the time. And I called the national drug hotline. I called, uh, different treatment centers. Nobody had heard of it. Um, and I did ended up doing more research and found that it was an opioid and I didn't even really know what that was at the time. I had heard of Oxycontin and I knew it was bad, but I didn't know about the opioid epidemic. I was just kind of lost. Um, so I really started doing some research and um, there was actually a doctor in the state of Washington that through my research, I saw his name and I called him and he kind of explained everything to me about what was going on. Um, and I didn't really include until what, that time. What company distributes open? Endo Pharmaceuticals. Okay. Uh, and is, Op is Opana considered um, like an alternative to Oxycontin or is it used for different things? I'm, I'm very uneducated in Opana. Uh, Opana is uh, used for pain, but difference with this particular drug is it was on the market back in the um, 60s and 70s. It was actually approved in 1955 as new and new And that drug was removed from the market in 1979 because of all the abuse, pharmacy robberies, um, there were major problems with the drug and it was taken off the market. And then when Purdue Pharma started making money from Oxycontin, Endo went to the FDA to get this drug approved again as Opana. And it was denied because of safety reasons in the clinical trials. So they came up with a new clinical trial that took safety out of it and took it back to the FDA and it was approved. Wait a second. They took safety out of it and the FDA approved yes. it? Yes. 
And every opioid since that time has used that same clinical trial. Wow. Yeah, the FDA is supposed to be the watchdog organization to ensure that drugs that can harm us don't come to market. But, well, uh, we'll leave my political viewpoints aside. The the FDA has failed. They knew that this drug was going to cause problems. Endo knew it was going to cause problems, and it was still approved, and it was put on the market, and they, they followed the footsteps of Purdue Pharma, even used the same marketing people. And they marketed specific areas. Uh, Tennessee was hit hard, Indiana, Kentucky, Orange County, California. You know, there were different areas that really were hit hard by this. Wow. And that's interesting because West Virginia was hit very hard with Oxycontin. We know that. Wow. Wow. So is Opana still on the market? Is it still legally prescribed? Yes. So there was, um, in Scott County, Indiana, they had an HIV outbreak, if you remember, several years back. And the drug of choice in that area was Opana. And, you know, most I shouldn't say most people, but a lot of people, when heroin came into the picture, they moved from Oxycontin to heroin because it became much cheaper. Right. With Opana, that is still the drug of choice in that area. Heroin isn't good enough. There, there is something um, unique about oxymorphone and that drug that once people become addicted to it, it is very, very difficult for them to, to break free from that. Wow. I had no idea. This is a whole new, new thing for me. So your son was how old when he started using Opana? Um, I think 18. And he through periods okay. of time where he did not use, he did go to a, a treatment center for a while and he was able to do well for, for periods of time. And then he would get back. Um, he tried very hard to get past it. Yep. And then how was he introduced to Oxy? I think you said a friend gave it to him. Yeah. He was 17, almost 18 years old at the time. So he was a a group of friends that offered him an Oxycontin and he took it. And it it just seemed so immediate that he became addicted. I see. Did he then just do Oxycontin until the time of his death or was he still using Opana with it? Um, I, I believe he used both on and off. Okay. And how... Uh, did he die of an overdose, yes. Emily? Yeah, he had um, gone on a camping trip with friends. He was in the military. He was uh, a Kentucky National Guardsman, and he was getting ready to be deployed to Africa. And I guess, you know, they this was a one last time or something. I don't know. But um, he had gone on a camping trip. 
And the next morning, a police officer knocked on my door. Mother's worst, worst nightmare. I'm so sorry. I just, you know, it's why we do this podcast. We just hope that there'll be a mom listening that will be able to save her child. But I'm, I'm sorry you lost your son. Do you have other children, Emily? Oh. <laughs> yes, I have a, a daughter. Let me let me just ask you that again, so that because so, I don't know that I can cut where the dog barked. So, do you have other children? Yes, Emily? I have a daughter. Um, she two years younger than my son, and she um, is now a nurse. Okay. Did did what happened to your son? Did that affect her in terms of her choices moving forward? I mean, like, is that why she became yes. a nurse? She wanted to uh, go into mental health and help people. Okay. Okay. So you, like some of the other mothers we've had on the podcast, didn't take it lying down, shall we say, the death of your son. So lead us forward to what you have been doing since your son passed away. Um, The year after he passed, I flew to Washington, D.C. First time in my life I'd been there. And I met with um, Senator McConnell. At the time, he was minority leader and attended a Fed Up rally. Um, Fed Up is a national coalition fighting this on a federal level. Um, So I I started attending the the Fed Up rallies and getting very involved. Um, And I've been to Washington, D.C. every year since then. I've testified before the FDA numerous times. I've met with congressmen and senators and, um, you know, elected officials, appointed officials trying to change this. Um, I believe that this started with the federal government and until they fix it, it will never go away. This is never going to stop. I don't, I think, I think you make a very good point. Um, you know, the money that drug companies put into their lobbyists and put into the, you know, whether it's marketing to doctors or whether it's getting the right people elected, um, you know, yeah. And I'm curious, what did the FDA say to you? Did they have any remorse or what did they say when you testified in front of them? You are listening to the Addiction Podcast, Point of No Return. For more information on the podcast or to reach out if you have a story you would like to share with us, go to our Facebook page by the same name, or you can email us at theaddictionpodcast at yahoo.com, or go to our website, theaddictionpodcast.com, or call us at 727-314-7080. And please remember to subscribe to our podcast wherever you listen to podcasts and give us a five-star review. For more information on our sponsor, Narconon Ojai, visit their website at narcononohi.org. That's N-A-R-C-O-N-O-N-O-J-A-I.org. Or call 1-866-231-5924. 
That's 1-866-231-5924. Sometimes, the hardest thing about getting someone into recovery is getting them to agree to treatment. Bobby Newman, a certified drug counselor with 30 years experience and an over 85% success rate as an interventionist, has created a series of 12 videos that you can use right now to learn every step to get your loved one to agree to treatment. Call 1-833-918-0008 today and say the word podcast to get a 10% discount. Or go to newmaninterventions.com and type in the word podcast for a 10% discount. This service comes with a free one-hour consultation with Bobby. Um, I was able to talk to an FDA commissioner. Um, It took me five years um, to finally get a phone call with an FDA commissioner, and that was Scott Gottlieb. And when I spoke to him, I spoke to him specifically about the clinical trials and that these trials need to be addressed. They need to be changed so that... um, opioids that are approved are properly approved for the right reasons, if they're needed. Um, and he, he was very receptive. He was very taken back um, by what I told him. And a few months later. How could he be taken back? Was he just, I'm sorry, I'm going to be blunt here. Was he just stupid? I, I don't think Sorry. a lot of people know about the clinical trial, but they were changed. I do not believe they know. And yet he's a commissioner with the yeah. FDA. So um, then a few months later, or however long it was, he went to work for Pfizer. Of course. See, that's the thing. I, uh, yeah. Okay. Sorry. Yeah. So he did not make the changes that I was hoping for. And I did follow up numerous times. I was told that he read the clinical trial data, which I had requested, but nothing was changed. Wow. I I don't know what needs to happen here. I don't know if, if one day we might get uh, an FDA commissioner or someone in office that actually says this is wrong these things must change now i i just keep hoping that one day that's going to happen i i would hope the same thing um do the politicians um when you've met with like representatives or senators or whoever you met with do they offer to do anything or do they just pay you lip service? It's been lip service for the most part. Um, The health committee, the Senate health committee has the most oversight over the FDA. And we have requested hearings for the clinical trials and other stuff for years. And they have, they've yet to do it. Huh? Wow. Yeah. Okay. You are hitting up against um, Big Pharma's money and the money that they use to uh, lobby in Washington, D.C. Okay, so recently, um, you pointed this out, but this was also pointed out by Ed Bish when we had him on the podcast, 
there was an oversight committee that um, decided to bring in members of the Sackler family to find out. I haven't finished watching the hearing, so I don't know exactly everything that was said. Um, what committee was that? Was that does that have anything to do with health, or was what committee was it, that? Do you know, they they're an oversight committee, but they don't necessarily have an oversight over the FDA. So they they can bring people in and question them. There's, I guess. There's like no real like action they can take. Um, I don't know. I, it's kind of confusing the way that um, these different committees, what powers they have um, to do stuff. I, I think it was very good that they did that. It needed yes. to happen a long time ago. Yep. But. Um, yeah, because the Sacklers were kind of hidden. I don't, I don't know, you know, who even knew anybody knew who they were, and that they were that they owned Purdue Pharma and they were behind Purdue Pharma and they were the mastermind behind Purdue Pharma. And I think the fact that they've now sort of they don't have any more anonymity. They can't just you know rake in the money without anybody knowing who they are. They can still rake in the money, obviously, but yeah. But now at least we know who they are. Tell, tell us more about Fed Up and what Fed Up is doing, and if there is something that um, you know the people listening can do to get involved in this, whether they've lost a child or not. So Fed Up is a national coalition, and we are focused on the federal government. We have written numerous letters to the Department of Justice concerning Purdue Pharma and the Sacklers, as well as other drug companies. <laughs> and um, we, you know, do various things within the federal government. Sometimes we ask people to um, submit a comment to the FDA docket. We have rallies in D.C. Um, we were having them every year, obviously, with COVID. We, we're not doing that right now, but um, it's not to say we won't in the future but, you know, our federal government, there's all these committees, there's um, changes all the time. It's, it's hard to keep up with. And our hope is that these smaller organizations that are working on a state or, and local level will join the Fed Up Coalition and so that we have numbers behind what we are trying to do. And it again there's so much to keep up with locally state and the federal government is just a whole different you know entity there and yep. um that's our hope is to have people join the coalition they can sign up for our newsletters um and be a part of our group whether they can physically be there, but just kind of read up on what's going on and take action when, when they can. Exactly. Do you occasionally do any sort of letter writing campaign to, um, to federal government? Yes. Like to representatives? Yeah. Okay. So then people, when they sign up, could be called upon to write a letter in support of, right. you know, getting some sort of regulation 
going with these drugs. Right. Okay. So no rallies right now, but what what's next on the horizon for Fed Up, the Fed Up Coalition? Well, now that we are getting a, a new administration, it's um, almost like starting over again. <laughs> you know, each time a new administration comes in. So we will see who's appointed to FDA commissioner, to um, Department of Justice, and go down that road of holding these people accountable and making sure that there are changes made to stop new addictions. We can't. So when I first started this, there was nothing. There was no legislation. Nobody was paying attention to this. There was absolutely nothing on a federal level. Since then, there's been quite a bit of stuff. And they have given money to the states for treatment and things like that, which is good. But if you're not stopping the source, this is a vicious circle. So we're going to get people addicted. We're going to put them into treatment. The states won't have enough money to cover it. And then the next round of people that become addicted. It, it's ridiculous. We have to stop the source. We are still way over prescribing opioids. Right. What emphasis, if any, other than educating elected officials on what's going on, do you, does your organization um, promote any sort of education for people so that they know more about the dangers of opioids and, you know, might avoid taking them in the first place? Is that part of your agenda or? Uh, we do post a lot on social media about um, different stories, all of that to, to make people aware for sure. Okay. Thank you. Are there, are there places that people can go if they are listening and they want more education on what's happening either with Purdue Pharma or the Sackler family or just opioids in general? And is there someplace they can go to check it out? Um, FedUpRally.org is our website. And we often post things. There are, we've got quite a few letters out there that we have written to the Department of Justice, um, posted on our website that people can read and, and kind of go through and see, you know, the issues concerning these companies. And, um, you know, one thing is that all these companies that have followed in the footsteps of Purdue they can't just walk away with a fine. It, it's just the cost of doing business at that point. This yep. needs to be more than that. And they truly need to be held accountable. We live in, a, um, in America, you can make as much money as you want and that's wonderful, do it. But if you're hurting people and you're killing people in the process, our federal government is there for the checks and balances and they haven't been there in a yep. long time. Yep. You know, you're right. And I've, I've called up this example before on the podcast and I'm going to do it once again. Um, there was an MSNBC documentary special called the forgotten epidemic. And 
one of the things that they covered in that documentary was a young 26-year-old man in Utah who started an illicit drug business on the dark web, and he was making millions and millions. And when they finally raided his house, he had bags of pills. But this young 26-year-old man with his own business doing his own thing was sentenced to life without parole. And I look at that, and then I look at the executives at Purdue Pharma or Endo Pharmaceuticals, and I go, why, why are they exempt from this type of prosecution? I don't get it. It does, It's not equitable to me. Um, one of the gentlemen in the MSNBC was saying, in the documentary, was saying that someone had asked him, you know, is this, this sentence that this young man got, you know, wasn't it maybe a bit harsh? And he said, no, he's responsible for deaths. He's responsible for, you know, addiction and, um, and overdoses. Yeah, well, what about the execs of Purdue Pharma? What about the Sackler family that got rich off of it? You know, it's like... Right. Yep. I mean, it's it's awful that they've been allowed to get away with us. It's criminal, yeah. basically. That's the bottom line. Emily, if you had one message for the either recovering addicts or addicts or families of addicts that are listening to our podcast, what would that one message be to them? What would you like them to know from you? Mm-hmm. Um that for sure there's help out there. It, it's more available now than, than it ever was. You know, educate yourself. Know that, that this takes a long time to recover from. The, an opioid addiction is unique in the fact that it could take years to recover. And... You know, we've got to fight this. We've got to make sure this doesn't happen again. Um, My fear is that long after we're dead and gone, that my nieces and nephews, their children and their children, another drug is going to come through the FDA, maybe not an opioid, something else. And it could cause just as much devastation, if not more. We've got to change this. Yep. Emily, I want to commend you for the work that you're doing and for fighting a fight that a lot of people might look at as impossible to win. And so when you are confronted with something like that, you have two choices, either you give up or you continue to fight. And you are one of those who are continuing to fight. And I personally thank you for all of the work that you're doing because you're making a difference. It may not always be obvious to you, but I know you're making a difference. And I thank you. It it is a very frustrating road (laughs) to say the, I, I do understand. And now, as you said, we've got a whole now, a whole new change now happening in Washington. And so you start back at square a and you start back, but I feel like even though maybe now you're going to be talking to new people, there are ripples from what you have done. And I think that, people really owe you a debt of gratitude for the work that you've done. And I I know you're not alone. I know there's a whole coalition there as well, but I like to think that, okay, maybe it's a couple steps back, but you made three steps forward and you know, you're going to continue the forward progress because I believe that that's the case. 
and once again, thank you so much for what you're doing and thank you for being willing to share your story. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed the interview today. I've said a lot in that interview. I've been on my soapbox. You know a lot of my opinions. One thing I do want to say, though, is a lot of times you can be listening to a podcast like this and maybe you have a child or a loved one who's addicted or maybe you lost someone to addiction and you can think, well, what can I do? I'm just one individual. But that's the whole purpose of organizations like the Fed Up Coalition. You can add your voice to a coalition like that and when you and maybe a thousand other people who are listening to this episode add your voice that's fuel politicians have to listen to people it's going to take a huge group of people to drown out the pharmaceutical company lobbyists no question but we have to start and we have to start to build. So if you're in a position to join the Fed Up Coalition, again, it's fedupralli.org. Please do so and lend your name. You can write letters, you don't have to give money, but you can get involved and you don't have to just sit there and take it. So thank you for listening. We've got some great interviews lined up. We are going to keep pushing the message that there is hope out there, there is help available, and we will talk to you again next week. You have been listening to The Addiction Podcast, Point of No Return, sponsored by Narcanon Ojai. For more information on Narcanon Ojai, call 866-231-5924 or visit www.narcanonojai.org. Narcanon is a non-12-step rehabilitation program based on the works of L. Ron Hubbard.